Welcome to The Entrepreneur's Journey, where Michael Pelosi leads discussions with successful entrepreneurs to learn about their journey of starting, building, and eventually selling their business or transitioning into the next generation. The goal is to allow you to learn from their knowledge, experience, and wisdom as you pursue that in your own business. Michael Pelosi is the president of HFM Investment Advisors, LLC, and brings over 30 years of experience working with business owners to organize and manage their business and personal financial plans to help them define and realize their personal version of success in their lives and businesses. Hello, my name is Michael Pelosi, president of HFM Advisors located in Glassboro, New Jersey. Welcome to another edition of our podcast where we'll be learning and listening to some great stories from successful entrepreneurs who have either recently sold their business or have passed their business to the next generation within their family. My guest today is Angelo Alberto. Angelo is a very successful architect that specializes in urban design and mixed-use planning. What's unique about Angelo's story is how he graduated from Cornell University five-year program, which happens to be the number two architectural college in the country. Then after graduation, Angelo took a position at one of the largest firms in Philadelphia. Quickly after showing his unique skills, Angelo took the advice of his mentor and obtained a graduate degree from Harvard University, the number one architectural college in the U.S., and then eventually started a business together after grad school. We are going to hear how Angelo leveraged his right brain creative thinking to help grow his business while tapping into his left brain capabilities to run several successful companies and then eventually selling to a much larger firm. Welcome, Angelo. I'm excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm excited as well. This is great. Long time coming. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Well, I have to say right from the beginning, I'm impressed and quite frankly, a little bit intimidated going to Cornell University and Harvard University. That's that's really impressive. The top two architectural colleges in the country. If I could just put a couple of color commentaries on that. Cornell was two and Harvard was one when I went. Okay. which was a long time ago. So I don't know what the current rate rankings are, but they're up there. Yeah. And then really the story starts, you know, I was just a regular South Jersey, Gloucester County guy growing up down here. And there's not a lot of architecture schools. So I was very fortunate to have good grades and a good portfolio that led me to Cornell. So Every day, I I feel very fortunate about that. I'm sure. What pushed you towards Cornell? Was there an attraction that came to your school? How did you go about picking Cornell? Did they pick you? No, I, quite frankly, I was looking at all the schools, and a girl that was a year ahead of me went to the Cornell summer program in architecture. And I was told that architecture was a real challenging profession, very hard in college. And my parents were very modest means, and they sent me to the same summer program that she went to. And there, you know, it's just luck. I had a really great teaching assistant who told me about Cooper Union. Most of the people listening may not have heard of Cooper Union. It's one of two free institutions in the country. Oh, wow. It's in Cooper Square in New York City. I applied there. and I also got in, (laughs) fortunately, in University of Maryland and a couple of others. But um, having spent the time in Cornell and knowing the reputation, I just really wanted to go there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. 
I always like to ask a little bit to hear a little background of individual stories. So is there any like funny story that happened while you were at Cornell while that can relate to your actual degree that you were studying or even in Harvard? Because I'm thinking Harvard, it, probably most people in Harvard are a little bit stuffy. So is there any good stories that you could tell, bring it back down to South Jersey and Gloucester County? Well, when it comes to Harvard, my wife always says, you don't remind me of those other Harvard <laughs> people. But for the listeners, my wife and I used to always call it the one-third, one-third, one-third population in Harvard. One-third of that population were just absolutely brilliant people, just off the charts. And they, as most of us define, it should be there. In those days, the other third were really groomed for it. They were going to the Miltons and the Choates and those top, top private schools. And the other third were scrappers, (laughs) like me. And you'll be surprised how many people just were really driven people and wanted to be, again, I feel like I was blessed to see, always wanted to do the best, and I was able to go to those really nice institutions. So that's a little bit of a story. I mean, I have lots of stories of (laughs) crazy things we did. We won't talk about them today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, that's, that's great. One of the things that I think we talked about before in some of our past conversations is, and this will lead into you know some of the business discussions here, is looking back some of the courses that if you could talk to a high school student going into college today that's taken architectural school, some of the other non-architectural classes that you thought would be important if it was you going back today to help you in business. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's actually for someone from the creative profession, a really good point. You know, architects, unlike engineers, are very, very right side of the brain driven, very creative. And at schools like Cornell or Notre Dame, some of the other top schools that are out there, it's design, design, design driven. It's very creative. And the more creative you are, the better student you are. And it's just really a flaw, I would say, in the architectural education that they put generally very little emphasis on the business end of it, understanding, you know, that it is a business. Sure. Lots of super talented architects sitting in their, you know, in their bedroom 20 years into it and still seeking a perfect creative project, whereas those folks would be such a value to firms like I'm currently in now, Spiesel Architectural Group, that could lend a lot. But it's not really the way it's taught. So, mm-hmm. like, for example, I was in the urban design program at Harvard, okay. which is land planning and things like that. And you had to take, it was uh, planning law. So you talk about a profession that's completely opposite from right side of the brain mm-hmm. to left side of the brain. And it just opened my eyes. It was mm-hmm. so fascinating to see how the law worked and things like that. I didn't get much of that on the business side. Right. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. That's a shame. So you specialize and you studied urban design and mixed use, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think that in today's world, that's really, really important, especially what's going on in some of the inner cities. Mm -hmm. So for our audience who may not understand exactly what that means or details, can you explain what that type of study entails and what attracted you towards that? Sure. Probably for most of our listeners, you know, everybody wants to be an architect at one point in their life. (laughs) And not me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's why that's why you and I are a good team. But 
at Cornell, Cornell was really the school, Cornell and Yale, that rediscovered, and there was a renaissance, looking back at the beautiful main streets and downtown old cities of Philadelphia, downtown Haddonfield, Morristown. And really, we were learning architecture, but that whole rebirth was about, you know, looking at communities that weren't strip malls and business districts and residential subdivisions. It was talking about much more of a mix. Mm -hmm. So I got that at my undergraduate school as part of the architectural program. And I really hit it timing-wise when I graduated from Harvard because that was becoming really popular. Anybody out there has seen the Renaissance on Main Streets and things like that through this region, as well as downtown Philadelphia. And with my office now in Camden, we're hoping the same thing will happen in Camden. So I personally do a lot of that upfront, helping developers, community leaders knit together all of those pieces to try and not build one building, but plan for a whole context of buildings. Because, you know, everywhere from downtown Pittman, which was a great article in the newspaper this weekend, to downtown Glassboro, all the way up to Rome, you know, we love walking down those streets. And that's what drives a large part of my professional practice. Yeah, it's starting to see that here in Glassboro too. There's a lot, a lot of new development and they're bringing back some of the history. They just actually painted a great mural right in the park there, which is, it's really brought back a lot of the history here from the glass blowers and everything. Oh yeah, I really wish, you know, to this day that I was part of Rowan Boulevard. I mean, you look at that urban imposition going from the campus to City Hall and what that's done for this city. It's just beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you graduated Cornell and you landed your first job, which most people in the industry in this area would say is probably one of the premier architectural firms in the city. Is that correct to say that? That is correct. Yeah. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that experience. So it's one of the larger firms in Philadelphia, Ewing Cole, and it just, you know, it was a firm that was really had a vision and growth and was moving from a hospital firm primarily to being multi-market, working in a lot of different markets. But for me personally, I connected somehow with Alexander Ewing, the founder of the firm. Mm. So you talk about- Nice connection. Well, he always would say to me, Angelo, I'm not an architect. I'm a, you know, I'm a businessman. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you think about that, because I definitely had an excellent creative undergraduate education and then to be exposed to an entrepreneur like that. And he started many, many businesses throughout the city. So, you know, I had my architectural chops and I did very well at that firm, but I, he took me under his wing a little bit and I learned a lot of other things with him. I'm sure. Do you think, would you say he was your mentor? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I had a design mentor there that was great. But what I learned from Alec was just, you know, he's passed away, sadly, but, you know, at age 80, (laughs) you know, he came and saw my parents' little farm lot that they had and, you know, helped them, gave them some ideas about selling it. Everything from that to, you know, Geisinger Hospital and Cooper University Hospital, he treated the same way. So at age 80, you know, we'd go to meetings and we'd be late and he'd beat me down the street. (laughs) So, you know... He was just that kind of guy, and he started many, many businesses. We broke out of Ewing Cole, okay. and he started Alberton Associates. Oh, so the two of you started that? Yes. Oh, that's 
great partner to start Alberto yeah. and Associates. Yeah. So when I got out of graduate school, I had done a master's thesis, a special master's thesis at Harvard. You know, Michael, listen to myself talk. I sound like a really smart guy, right? But <laughs> you are. I, I, you know, I was, I was my driven. My thesis from Harvard. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. And I, I had decided when I was working on my thesis, or I had hoped, I guess I should say, that I didn't want to work for anyone. I wanted to start a business around my master's thesis. And all that was was trying to protect some of these South Jersey towns and concentrate growth in the Glassboro's and the Pittman's and the Winona's of the world to help rebuild those towns and at the same time preserve open space. And I pitched it around the city. And of course, Alec Ewing was not like the other architects. Mm -hmm. He said, and let me throw some money at you and see what happens. Wow. That's how I got started in business. That's amazing. It really is amazing. And I followed my passion and I met an entrepreneur that was willing to invest in me for a year. So it kind of changed your the future trajectory of your whole entrepreneurial business, right? Yeah, 100%. And we started Alberto and Associates, and he ended up selling it to Ewing Cole. It was just Alec and me. Okay. And then I was a subsidiary of Ewing Cole for several years. I mean, this is, again, another lucky thing. He knew the largest singly held parcel in the state of Delaware was owned by the DuPont family. Oh, wow. Through his connections, we basically did my master's thesis on their property, which if you look it up today, it's called the Whitehall Project. Wow. On the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. And that, you know, I don't know what it looks like today in terms of master plan, but it really was, we were going to preserve 56% of the open space on their, it was 2,000 acres. And so here you go. You know, I had this really thoughtful master's thesis, but now you have an entrepreneur that says, oh, we're going to build this thing, you know, so. So you're building quite a resume, Cornell, Harvard, DuPont, yeah, Ewing Cole. Correct. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And then when did you eventually, you and Alec, I guess, break up and you started out on your own at Alberta and Associates, correct? Yes, yes. So how did that come about? And, you know, what projects did you start working on from there? What was that either fear or excitement that got you started on your own? Right. The Whitehall project took many years to get approved. And, you know, Probably one of the upsides of my personality and certainly one of the downsides is, is my impatience. Mm -hmm. And when I look back on it, I said, Alec, I don't want to have my office in Delaware and wait anymore. I want to start my own business. And you and Cole no longer really wanted to have this little boutique planning mm -hmm. firm as part of their big corporate firm. So I bought myself out. And that was in 2000. The downside of that is, like some of my friends, like one of my closest friends at Ewing Cole went on to become president, and he thought about leaving Ewing Cole, and Alec was the kind of guy who said, hey, you're not leaving. And he went on to be president, very successful, wow. dear friend of mine. But at the same time, I probably left a little early because I didn't have as much just practical experience in the architectural business. Sure. But over the years, I hired some really great people that, you know, filled in those holes. Mm -hmm, definitely. And I said earlier, you know, and you had mentioned architecture is all right side creative thinking. Mm -hmm. Usually that's not the typical personality or traits that you would see in a business owner that's going to be running the numbers and the budgets and things like that. Tell me how you built your team to help fulfill that left side of a need to, you know, keep your business running profitably. Right, right. Cash flow. Yeah. And just a quick fast forward, 
you know, I'm with Spiesel Architectural Group now, and they certainly have both sides of that down, mm-hmm. the creative and the business side. And I will say over the years, my team, I mean, I take a bullet for any of these folks that over the years that helped me out, but I had an, an accountant, and we don't have an hour to tell how I mm-hmm. met him, but I had a bad experience with an accountant, and I tore the page out of the phone book, and I like working locally. And I went, walked down the streets of Haddonfield trying to find an accountant. <laughs> and I lucked out. I met a really nice gentleman, and he wanted to make a pitch to us. And I said, you have to bring somebody young and hungry because you're going to retire. He had told me he was. Oh, wow. And I met my accountant, Steve Keith Sparks, who he was an important part of my team. Sure. And then some of the legal assistance that I have had over the years. But really, truthfully, it was the hires that I made just architects who were extremely experienced and had their niches, whether it was in senior living or health care or multifamily housing. And I called myself chief arm waver. I'm not shy. I love to meet people. And that was really a little bit of a learned behavior for anybody out there that feels uncomfortable going to a fundraiser or a networking session. I had no choice, right? And little did I know how much I loved it. And I would open a lot of doors and get us in places, but believe me, it was those guys that were doing the blocking and tackling that made my business every much as as I, you know, opened the doors, they made clients happy by doing beautiful work and making sure the roofs didn't leak, you know, yeah. <laughs> things yep. like that. So you, you not only had the creative side, but you're also the kind of rainmaker in business development. It sounds like that's where you really felt your strength and, and built right. a business, right? Yeah, whether it's by default or watching Alec in action at Ewing Cole. That's all he did, you know, certainly in his later career. Again, there's the combination of those things that's so critical. And that's what I'm doing at Spiesel right now sure. with some super talented other teammates there. You know, I will say that the team that I built, like my account was great for a small company. And I always wanted to have a kind of a CFO or somebody. And I never really had that. So part of the reason that i felt fortunate that Spiesel came along was when we we survived the last downturn in the economy. And if you don't mind, I'll talk a little bit about City Invincible. Yeah, 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 definitely. So we survived the downturn by the skin of our teeth. And when we started coming out of that in about 2012, 13, 14, I could see that we weren't going to get any larger. And we certainly had the talent to do larger projects, but we weren't going to get any larger. We just didn't have the right infrastructure. And I started reaching out to some of my colleague firms and essentially myself and two other firms formed City Invincible. And where'd you come up with that name? Because that's a mm-hmm. unique name. Well, It's a cool name, by the way. Well, I sat down <laughs> with these two other firms and I said, I have the name for the company. And one of the guys told me after it, he said, I knew a fight was coming. <laughs> and I read them a poem by Camden native Walt Whitman about I dreamed in a dream I saw a city invincible. And for creative people, they said, that's cool. That's going to be our name. Now, Camden, you know, if you drive down Admiral's Wilson Boulevard, you see City Invincible there. It really is much bigger than our architecture firm. It's the one of the monikers that the city oh, wow. uses to this day. And that was, you know... It's impressive. It is. And it it really opened a lot of doors when we moved into Camden. But, 
you know, in discussions with my partners at Spiesel, they said, you know, it's bigger than us and we're going to use it as a tagline. But, you know, I'm currently working for Spiesel and a lot of our urban design and planning talks about City Invincible and, sure. and that vision. But yeah, that's how it came about. And we joined up these three firms and we wanted to be part of the Camden City Renaissance and saw a gorgeous building that was just sitting there boarded up like a lot of buildings in Camden and we bought it and renovated it. And, you know, I thought I was going to Camden to just be part of that renaissance and make millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> but when you get into Camden City, you also see that you really see firsthand that how much need there is. So we've gotten involved in a lot of the charitable causes and city rebuilding causes in the city. We have to remember we're a business, but you can't help but do that. And I make that point because the building that we renovated, it's unbelievable when some of the Camden residents come in and yeah. see what you know these creative architects did, and they just love it. And one of the leaders in the city, that's a good friend of mine, and you know said, if I ever get married, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have my reception in your building. It's a beautiful building. I was there last year. It was incredible. It was beautiful. Yeah, and what we <laughs> really did, is. what we did, and what Cooper Hospital is doing, and American Water, and the Partner Tower that's downtown. It's exciting at this point in my career to be part of that because, you know, we love doing architecture everywhere. But when you see it having like a triple net effect sure. on the neighborhood like that, it's really wonderful. It's really exciting. That's great. That, that's, yeah, I, I think that is kind of the, one of your hallmarks of your career is that City Invincible and what everything that you have done, you know, is a landmark there. That's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, no, it's exciting. So let's talk about as you started to grow your company, right? I think you had a couple offers a while back to, you know, everybody saw the success of your business. And I think you had some offers to purchase your business, but I don't think you were actually looking to sell at the time. Tell me a little bit about, you know, the progress and the and how that happened where you eventually ended up picking Spiesel as the buyer of your company. I tell my wife, and maybe she's my greatest confidant, I say, I would say, Michael, over the years, I've probably had at least six companies want to buy my company. And I would always say to my wife, I said, you know, that's like a compliment and criticism at the same time. And it really, in retrospect, was. I think a lot of people saw what I was building, the talent and the leadership that I could provide. But they were also sitting back probably saying, this guy's never going to go to the next level. And I would say that's true. So I had probably about six firms come and talk to me. I didn't know what it meant. This is how small business I was. I didn't really know what it meant to sell my firm. And actually, Spiesel approached me about a decade ago to buy my firm. And we talked and things like that. But I really didn't – I wasn't organized enough as a business to really understand what that meant, what the benefits of it were, or how to position myself to sell my firm – And I will say that when Spiesel came along, you know, I was talking to a couple of other firms as well, but, you know, between their CEO and their CFO, these guys, you know, they think, again, they saw the talent in our firm and they wanted to be in Camden and the Philadelphia region, but they had to do some handholding to take us through the sale. And I had a very good attorney that I worked with, and again, Keith, my accountant, But it really was, (laughs) I don't want to use the word sympathetic, but a knowledgeable firm 
that said, okay, this is what this firm's about. Here's the pluses, here's the challenges, and they really put the deal together in a way that was palatable for them and myself. Sure. I want to step back a little because you said something that resonated with me. When these firms were making offers to you, or at least in a conversation, that you didn't even realize what that meant, that they were going to buy your business, and you didn't know if you can go to the next level, I think you said, or you may have thought that they were thinking the same thing. Some business owners want to go to the next level, and some are comfortable where they are. Were you comfortable where you are? And once they approached you, you said, maybe there is something bigger and better. I can grow this bigger with a different firm and maybe match your culture with another culture? Or were you always looking to get bigger, but you just didn't know what pieces to put together to get to the next level until they approached you? Now, I'm surprised you asked that. You should know me well enough to know that I want to take over the world. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But I always wanted to be larger. When we sold to Spiesel, we were about 16 people. And that's not for ego. Mm -hmm. It really is, once you get to that 20 plus or minus number in our profession, you start opening doors to be able to do the larger projects if that's what you want to do. And we always thought we could do those kinds of projects. And we had some breaks and have done some, you know, $20 million plus projects. But the flip side of it was at our size, we weren't really set up. It was all hands on deck. Mm -hmm. And we weren't like Spiesel is set up to put together teams with a principal. I'm one of seven principals at Spiesel with a project manager, with a project architect, and, you know, interior design and a production crew to make projects of that size happen. Right. Which you didn't have before, correct? Mm -mm. No, we had some people that were willing to work, you know, 25 hours a day to make it happen. And we had a lot of happy clients, but it's not really the right model to do the type of work that I'm now doing at Spiesel. Got it. So Spiesel's infrastructure, per se, allowed you now to take your creative thinking and your business development and have a team behind you that you didn't have when you were smaller, right, to kind of help you to your full potential at this point. That's exactly right. And I'll say that a number of the firms that I spoke to, you know, I would see the same as Spiesel, but they really weren't. They weren't set up that way. And I'm not... Spiesel... I would think would define themselves as, I think they were just ranked like in the top 150 in the country. Wow. Yeah. They're doing really well and and I'm excited to be part of that. But the difference between them and what I thought a lot of the other firms I was talking to uh, were the same as them. You know, I should say that they're a 65-year-old firm. But for many of those years, they were sort of like Alberto and Associates City Invincible. They were a smaller K to 12, kindergarten to 12th grade school firm. And through some good leadership, started with Scott Spiesel, and then certainly the team we have now with Tom Perino being the CEO and Tom Lee being the CFO, and then the other five partners, they really, through that K-12 experience, they learned how to build teams, really deliver projects in that arena. And I see them a lot like I saw you and Cole back in the 80s, right. where they had success primarily in that market sector, and they've successfully brought on some real talent, many of whom have been there a lot of years, to build our senior living group, 
our healthcare group, yep. our higher education group. And, you know, it's not magic. Angelo Alberto certainly wasn't going to do it by himself, but it's not magic. A lot of firms have done it. A lot of firms have failed at doing it, especially in the creative business. Spiesel is one of these firms that really understands that dynamic and how to how to, to build on that. Sure, sure. As you know, this podcast is about letting other entrepreneurs learn from your experiences as you approached and successfully sold your business and matched your successful entrepreneur company with another company. If you can give a piece of advice for other small service provider firms like yourself, whether it's architectural, interior design in that level, what advice would you give yourself looking back two or three years ago that you would say, hey, Angelo, this is what you should look for in another firm to match either cultures or to match up something that we don't have to help us grow to the next level? What advice would you give to some of our listeners? Yeah, certainly for any of the more creative firms out there, and I would say that goes, you know, from the architecture and interior design profession to someone starting a coffee shop or something like that, you know, that passion drives you. And that passion has turned into many, many successful companies. But those folks, as I think you alluded to earlier, aren't really left side of the brain driven and don't understand the business aspects of it. And that is really, really important. You know, what are your metrics? How are you measuring yourself? The best we ever did was, you know, at the end of the year, we total up all of our receivables and our expenses, and we say, hey, you know, I can give everybody a couple of thousand dollars this right. year. We had a successful year, and that works for small firms. Sure. But, there, you know, if you want to grow, there's a lot more to it. it. And I would say that life is a team sport, right? Whether you're fortunate enough to have a nice family or if you're in business. And if you have, you know, a four-person coffee shop, you should be talking to your attorney about things and, you know, you should have an accountant that's going to help you. And I can tell you, on the personal side, I, and, you know, this is not trying to puff up your feathers here, but I had a number of personal failures with financial advisors. I mm. did not really get good advice. And I think when I came to you, I said I was O for 3. <laughs> and looking back on that, that was because every dime I had was reinvested back into the business. Sure. Not every dime. I always had a 401k. I was at least smart enough to have that. But I got reinvested back into business. And, you know, with respect to them, they weren't really that interested in what I was doing. And fortunately, when I came to you, I had a couple of pennies that we could start to think about. But by the same token, you know, I, under I see behind me, we have talked a little bit about HFM Ignite, that idea of... People when they're younger, they're hungrier, and having somebody like HFM Ignite, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, this is not a plug, that, you know, somebody like some of the younger people that I know in my firm or my, even my children, to be able to sort of start to put one foot in front of the other mm -hmm. financially is extremely important. You know, hey, I was lucky, but if I was able to do it again, I probably <laughs> Have a, I'd probably be walking a little sideways and have a heavier wallet. There you go. <laughs> hey, still got plenty of time, right? Yeah, exactly. Still got plenty of time, right? Which leads into kind of one of my final questions is, you know, we're looking into the future now, right? You're maybe a few years away of at least maybe slowing down. So what does the future look like, whether it's the future 
still working at Spiesel the next few years, or maybe once you leave Spiesel, what's that look like? And do you have any future community projects that you're looking forward to now that you've successfully sold your business, you're continuing to build up within Spiesel as one of the partners there, one of the principals. What's the future look like for you in terms of things that you want to really do once you slow down? That's a great question. I would say at least for the next four or five, six years, I really want to do my part as a partner at Spiesel to bring in work and help them build their vision that they have that, you know, hopefully we're adding to. So that's really important to me, and I love it, and it's my passion to help build the company. And that's not just a bottom-line thing. It's the culture. It's Spiesel. It's Spiesel is, is an employee-owned ESOP. And to help mentor some of the young folks, you know, we're always talking as creative people about improving our creativity and our design mm-hmm. there. So that's probably what I'm going to be doing for the foreseeable future. But again, being in Camden, you know, I was one of the founding board members of the Camden Joseph Fund, which has a homeless shelter. It has a teen group. It has a child development group. And, you know, something like the Joseph Fund being part of that, you know, giving back and and charitable work. That's a great organization. It's really interesting. And, And you talk about entrepreneurs Oh boy, this that was fa- started by Father Bob McDermott, who is one of two Catholic priests in the city of Camden who just never gave up on the city. Wow. And he started all these ministries. Somebody needed a house, so he starts the St. Joseph's Carpenter Society, which has 900 homes that they built and sold, wow. a lower default rate than the national <laughs> average. You know, all of these people of modest means in Camden that want to buy a Joseph Fund house have to go to mortgage college or something like that. And this was all him. And he got close to retirement and he got a couple of people in the building trades because he knew them to form the Joseph Fund. Well, it turns out, and you talk about learning, you know, you've described me as an entrepreneur. Well, there are some entrepreneurs on this board that I learned so much from. And within less than a year and a half, other foundations in the city were saying, well, you have all of the good people on your board. You're making more money than us. That's great. If you think about it, it's a real testimony to business people and entrepreneurs that in this case, thankfully, wanted to give back. But there's something there when you talk about the fundamentals of understanding business and translating that to something like the Joseph Fund. Sure. No, that's great. That's, you know, to take your skills and your knowledge and experience and then just give up your time and your passion to help out, you know, in the city, that's great. Yeah, no, that's certainly a passion of mine. And the number of people that knock on our door in Camden, you have to, as Alexander Ewing said, you have to remember we're in a profit-making business. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's hard to do that. And, Absolutely. Because you know, there's so much need there and, you know, opportunity and the desire to help people. Definitely. Last question I'll ask you, maybe put you on a spot. What is a bucket list vacation spot you are going to take Edie on? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is being recorded, so she's going to hear it. <laughs> I'm one step up. Edie is my wife, and she put up with a lot over the years. When you're an entrepreneur, there's some <laughs> some lean days there, you know? So I'm going to answer that this way. My daughter, my youngest daughter, who loves other cultures, was supposed to study in Spain okay. this past semester. But, of course, because of COVID, that didn't happen. 
So my middle child surprised us in, in December, took a job with Oracle, great opportunity, and moved to L.A. Yeah. So we just got back from a 10-day trip touring around California. Excellent. So that was, as you know, part of our plan That's to right. be able to travel. So instead of Spain, we went for 10 days to California, and it was just so wonderful. And our next trip, we don't know. Okay. But boy, taking that trip really opened our eyes. So good, we're, good. we're not sure. You know, We've always wanted to go to Quebec, which is defined as the most European city in this continent, or maybe just go to the beach and just hang out. Just sit in the sand. Well, so. that's good. That's good. I did put you on the spot. So. <laughs> no, thank but you. I can't no. wait to hear offline your trip to California. I'm sure it was great. I know you put a lot of planning into it. Yeah, I'll make one other comment before we go. And that is, because I I wanted to plug this, and I cannot remember the author, but in terms of being an entrepreneur and doing business development, if you get into reading books about Mm -hmm. business leadership and business acumen and things like that, I always credit the book Never Eat Alone as one of certainly my favorite book. I heard the book I do forget. The author in that book, yeah. I, I really apologize that, yeah, it's called Never Eat Alone. And I read this, and this was, you know, we're from South Jersey, mm-hmm. right? And I remember Bruce Paperone of the Paperone family said, hey, you're going to realize someday, you know, that South Jersey is not the main line in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and it's not North Jersey. And, you know, we do a lot of multifamily development, and the houses that we build in South Jersey sell for four times as much in North Jersey. So... Reading that book about a South Jersey type guy from the coal regions of Wilkesbury and how he developed himself is something that, you know, if we have local listeners here, was just really eye opening for me. It's a great book. Yeah. Any entrepreneur, anybody wants to build their business, it's a yeah, great book. Yeah. We read books in here all the time. Yeah. They're yeah, great it's wonderful, books. Wonderful. Definitely. I'll have to get the name of the author and put it on the podcast when we send this out. Wayne, so thank you very much. This has been a great time spending. You know, time learning about your career and the history and your academic achievements and everything that you have done and to the next phase of your life. So thank you very much. And I hope the listeners will get a lot out of what we talked about today. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for listening to The Entrepreneur's Journey, hosted by Michael Pelosi, president of HFM Investment Advisors, LLC. To learn more and to subscribe to the show, head on over to hfmadvisors.com. HFM Investment Advisors LLC is a registered investment advisor. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer for sale or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. All investments involve risk and are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as a recommendation appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.